You're listening to audio from Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. For more information, go to cbcsavannah.com. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Father, we bow down to you. And just like these songs sang, we we consider your greatness, Lord God. And we acknowledge that you are altogether different than we are. Your word says that you are in the heavens and you do whatever you please. That no one can can be compared to you. The king's hearts are like water in your hands. Lord, you are God alone and you deserve worship. And this morning we want to see you. And we don't just want to see you, Lord, we need to see you. And we need help to see you, Lord. We are weak people. We are broken people. We are sinful people. And Lord, you are the source of all goodness and you're the source of all joy. You're the source of all pleasure and satisfaction. And so we just beg that you'd open up up our eyes to see you this morning. Holy Spirit, would you come and act on us? Would you come and draw us to you? Would you come and show us Jesus Christ as he really is? Not as we might think he is. Show us Jesus the King as he really is. We want to see him. We want to worship him. Lord, we can't do this. I can't do this. Lord, you know how sinful and weak I am. You know how needy I am. And so I'm just begging, Lord, that you would send your Holy Spirit to please speak your word to your people. You tell us you love us. You tell us that you want to build us up into maturity. So, Lord, we are posturing ourselves humbly, and we ask that you would just come and do that. Build us up. Speak to us and glorify your son, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 30, or 44. Luke 4, 31 to 44. If you guys would turn there. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start by doing something I shouldn't do in church. Talk about something I shouldn't talk about. I'm going to start by talking about politics. It's risky, isn't it? It's risky this time of year. Um. Hey, I know there's probably a lot of different people with a lot of different views in this room. But here's one thing I think we can agree on. We've we've just been through a fascinating process. It is a fascinating process. And one of the things that's most fascinating to me is the campaign trail. You got all these guys giving all these speeches, making some pretty big promises. And the question is, can these guys really deliver on their promises? Can they really do it? And history tells us that they don't always do it. A hundred years ago, Woodrow Wilson campaigned, 
saying that he would not lead America into war. A year later, World War I. 25 years after that, FDR said he's not going to lead our boys onto foreign soil. Shortly after World War II. Y'all might remember Bush Sr.? Read my lips. No new taxes. Our last president campaigned in 2008 by saying that marriage is a union between a man and a woman. Our current president has vowed to eradicate Islam. It's been around for 1,400 years. Bold claim, okay? But it's not just presidents who make big claims and don't deliver, okay? It's also pastors. I know of one pastor who who haughtily stands in his pulpit week after week making football predictions. I don't know if any of them have come true. I do know this, Bill. You're conveniently gone this weekend. But if you're listening on the podcast, the Falcons are going to the Super Bowl and your Eagles are eating out of their cereal bowls. And I don't know what Bill's spiritual gift is, but I know for sure it's not prophecy. (laughs) But whether it's a president or pastors, lots of leaders talk a big game. Lots of of leaders make big promises. Lots of leaders make big claims, and they don't always deliver. The last two months, we've been looking at the central figure in human history, Jesus Christ. And there were some serious claims made about this guy. Shortly before he was born, the angel Gabriel appeared to his mom and said, He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Shortly after he was born, a guy named Simeon, Righteous man in Israel sees Jesus and says, this guy is going to offer salvation to everyone. And based on how people respond to him, every single human being will either rise or fall. And then already in this book, Luke, the narrator, has been going to great lengths to show us that Jesus is the Son of God. But last week we saw something for the first time. We saw Jesus start to make these claims for himself. He's at a synagogue in Nazareth, and he opens up the scroll of Isaiah, and he starts reading Isaiah chapter 61, this prophecy about the coming Messiah, that there's one coming, and the Spirit of the Lord would rest upon him, and he's going to be the one who delivers people from their oppression. He's going to be the one who sets the captives free, who ushers in the day of the Lord. Jesus read that, and then listen, he said, that's me. Today, that scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I'm that Messiah. I'm that guy. Now, I want you to think about that with fresh ears. Who could live up to that claim? Who could deliver on that claim? In our system, we give our new leader 100 days. What's he going to do in the first 100 days? Is he going to deliver? Is he going to get anything done? What's he going to do? And here's what we're going to see today. doesn't take Jesus 100 days. No, no, no. In just one day, Jesus starts to deliver on everything that he claimed. In just one day, a day in the ministry of Jesus, we see him put his money where his mouth is. 
And like Ethan said in his exhortation, y'all, the, the point of today is not a try harder, do better, find your best life now in five steps sermon. The point of today is a behold our God sermon. Luke's point in this passage is to show us what Jesus did so that we might reach the right conclusion about who he is. So that's going to inform our time. Three observations about who, what Jesus did, what he can do, so that we might see rightly who he is. All right, and as I often remind you when we get started, y'all, in your laps is the word of God. God has spoken. There is nothing like this book. So let's come with humility. Let's come knowing that we are receiving the grace of God as we read his words. Luke chapter 4, verses 31 and 32. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. So Jesus is in Capernaum, a a town on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he goes to the synagogue on a Sabbath, and this Sabbath he didn't go to receive, he went to teach. His ministry had begun. Okay, and the content of his teaching is the kingdom of God. We know this from verse 43. He's going to go teach the kingdom of God to other towns as well. Well, but, but Luke doesn't give us a ton about his content. What Luke wants to draw our attention to is two things, right? He wants to draw our attention to the authority of Jesus and the reaction of the people to that authority, okay? And right away that we see the reaction of these people to Jesus' teaching is that they are astonished, They are shocked by this man because his teaching is altogether different than theirs. It's completely different. He's not a scribe telling you what other people think. He's not speculating about theories. They're they're not struck by his, you know, witty jokes or his eloquent oratory. No, 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 no. They are astonished because he teaches as one with authority. They're not empty campaign promises. Okay, it's all about authority. And Luke emphasizes this not just in verse 32, but also in verse 36. Okay, whenever you're reading your Bible and you see words repeated, the author's trying to draw your attention to something. And this morning, Luke is trying to draw our attention to the reality that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is a man with authority. He's a man with power. Okay, and in highlighting his authority, he's trying to point us to his identity. So that's what we're looking for. Okay, let's watch it play out. Verse 33. In the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So get in the story with me, okay? Just imagine. Word had been spreading throughout Galilee about this guy, Jesus of Nazareth. Everybody wants to see him. Everybody wants to be around him. Everybody wants to hear from him. And the folks in Capernaum had to be thinking, I wonder if he's going to come here. I wonder if he's going to come to our synagogue. They had been anticipating this. And on this Saturday morning, he came. And when he came, he was exceeding all their expectations. He was delivering, right, better than expected. And then all of a sudden, mid-sermon, he's interrupted by some guy who stands up and starts yelling at him. A guy who's after him. right? It's not just some crazy political kook interrupting a political rally. Luke tells us that this man had the spirit 
of an unclean demon. And Jesus was his target. Okay, now quick aside. When it comes to dealing with the spiritual realm of the demonic in the Bible, okay, in the West, we can, we can fall off the road on either side, okay? We can fall into the ditch on either side of this. One way that we can fall into the ditch when it comes to the demonic is to over-spiritualize it, okay? We think that any bad thing that happens, any unfortunate circumstance is, is influenced by the demonic, okay? That's not, that's not the biblical priority, right? It's, it's even rarely a biblical category. The emphasis in the scripture is on the sinful condition of the human heart and the consequences of sin in the world, okay? So if you don't have biblical language to use about the demonic, don't speculate. Don't go above and beyond, okay? You can fall off the ditch by over-spiritualizing, okay? Here's where more of us fall off the ditch, though, okay? More of us fall off the ditch or fall off the road into the ditch. You don't fall off of a ditch, um, more of us do this. Ah, you know, I, psychology explains that. And, you know, we live in a rationalistic and a natural and scientific society. And so I'm just going to kind of discount some of those things I see in the Gospels. Friends, can't do that. The Bible makes it clear that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the principalities of this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Okay, There is a spiritual war going on. There is an enemy of your soul, and we need to acknowledge it. Okay, Because here's Satan's strategy in the West. If he can cause us to think that he doesn't exist, then he can do what he wants with us. He can manipulate us. It's his strategy here. It's a great strategy. Okay, But it wasn't his strategy in first century Israel. In first century Israel, there is a full onslaught of satanic forces in Judea. Okay, there is a swell of demonic activity, and it comes to a head in this synagogue in Capernaum on this Saturday morning. The demon-possessed man, he knows just who Jesus is, right? And we're going to come back to that in a minute. He knows him. We know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Have you come to destroy us? And so he, he braces himself for this confrontation. But honestly, y'all, it's really not much of a confrontation. It's kind of like one of those Tyson fights in the early 90s. Y'all know when you pay like 99 bucks for pay-per-view and then Tyson knocks a dude out in 16 seconds. And you're like, I lost my money. That's kind of what happens here. Okay, watch, look at it. With just a word, just like he had in creation, Jesus exercises his authority. This time with a rebuke. Verse 35. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. So with perfect obedience, this demon obeys Jesus. The man is left unharmed, and just like Jesus promised he would last week, he's setting captives free. He's doing just what he said he would do. And and the, the crowd responds just like we would. Verse 36. They were amazed. And they said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And reports about him went into every place in the surrounding region. So just like we would have been if we were there that morning. The people there are shocked. They they don't even have a category for what they've just seen. And notice that their amazement is not targeted at the man who had just been cleansed of the demon. Okay, He's not their focus. 
No, no, their focus is on the one with authority. Their focus is on the one with power. And so this breaking news started to spread throughout the region. And here's the content of the news. It's our first observation about about Jesus. Jesus has authority over Satan. The first observation that we need to make this morning as we try to figure out who this guy is, is that he ha- whoever he is, he has authority over Satan. So remember, remember what Luke's trying to do. He's showing us what Jesus did so that we might arrive at the right conclusion about who he is. Right? And last week we saw him claiming to be the Holy One. We saw him claiming to be the one who set captives free. And now this week he's doing what he said he'd do. Not empty promises. He's delivering on his claim. Okay, real quick, there's a temptation that we can fall into when we're reading the Bible, okay? And that temptation, especially in the Gospels, is to prematurely apply these passages to our own lives. Anybody ever face that temptation? You want to know what this, what's this mean for me and you want to know fast? Okay, don't fall for that temptation here. This passage is not primarily about how you can cast out demons or how you can teach with authority. This passage is about Jesus it's about who he is and what he came to do. This is what Luke has in view. Okay? What Luke has in view is the reality that Satan has had authority over the world since Genesis chapter 3. And whoever this Jesus is, he's coming to reclaim what is rightfully God's. That's what Luke is pointing us to. Okay? And there, there's plenty more opportunity to see because he's just getting started in this day. So verse 38. And he, Jesus, arose... And he left the synagogue, and he entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Okay, so immediately following this service, Jesus doesn't go over to the barns, right? Although I'm sure the barns in Capernaum would have had a riveting conversation that day. Then go home and take a nap like I'm going to here in a few minutes. Here's what he does. He goes to Simon's house, and his ministry continues because it's not long before it's brought to him that Simon's mother-in-law is sick. And she's not just, doesn't have just a fever. Luke emphasizes she has a high fever. Now, reading this this week, I thought, well, dude, if you live with your in-laws long enough, somebody's going to get a fever. But Simon demonstrates his godliness by appealing to Jesus on her behalf. Some of y'all, if you're here with your mother-in-law, you'd probably think, ah, she probably ought to to stay in that room. Let's not bring her to Jesus. She might need this fever for a little while longer. But that's either not a funny joke or some of y'all are sitting next to your (laughs) mother-in-law. Anyway, Simon goes to Jesus and he appeals to Jesus on her behalf. Lord, can you heal her? Can you do for her what you did for that demon-possessed man? See, public or private, it didn't matter. Jesus, he came to serve. And so he walks over to Simon's mother-in-law. And he stands over her. And just like he had rebuked that demon, he rebukes that fever. And just like that demon had obeyed him, that fever obeys him. It's another captive set free. Just like he said. And really quickly, this doesn't have much to do with the sermon, but just notice, notice her reaction to this. Because, again, the point is not her. The point is Jesus. But she has the most appropriate reaction to an encounter with Jesus. She gets up and with a grateful heart just begins to serve. 
And that's what we ought to do. We have an encounter with Jesus. Just get up and start to serve him and start to serve those around us. That's what she does. But again, Luke's focus is not on Simon's mother-in-law. Luke's focus is on Jesus, and in, in particular, his authority. He has shown us that Jesus is authoritative over Satan, and now he's showing us that Jesus is authoritative over sickness. Okay, so the second observation we make. Jesus has authority over sickness. And he, he's just getting started. Keep going in verse 40. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them, and he healed them. And the demons also came out of many, crying, You're the Son of God. But he rebuked them and wouldn't allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. So Simon and his buddies weren't the only ones who had this idea to bring their, their sick to Jesus. As soon as the Sabbath was over, people who had been there this morning and likely ones who had heard the report about what had happened in the synagogue, they bring their sick to Jesus. And no doubt they're thinking, if he did that for that man in that synagogue this morning, what could he do for this person that I love? What could he do for me? If he's got that kind of authority, could he, could he bring that authority to bear on me? And so all of Capernaum seems to converge on this one little house. And, and quickly, let me, let me highlight a couple things about, about Jesus' authority here. Because here's, here's what I know. I'll just own it up front. I know a lot of us don't like authority. A lot of us are rubbed the wrong way by authority. A lot of us are skeptical of it. Right? We question the motives and the agenda of certain authorities. Or maybe you've been hurt by authorities in your past. And seeing that Jesus is an authority, maybe you like cringe a little bit. But friend, let me just show you how Jesus chooses to use his authority. He uses his authority to serve. Two observations. First, Jesus doesn't discriminate. Earlier, he healed a man with a demon. Then he healed an older woman. Now in verse 40, it's any who were sick. It's ones with various diseases. Okay? It's ones who've been possessed by demons. Come to him in faith, and Jesus will not discriminate. Oh, no, 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 no. He cares nothing for the categories that we might hold on to. Secondly, the thing I want you to see about Jesus' authority. Notice his personal care. Look back at verse 40. He laid his hands on every one of them. Laying on of hands is a new thing. This is not an Old Testament thing. So what's it about? Well, we don't know for sure. Some people... Think, well, maybe he's transferring his power to them. But I'm not so sure because he didn't need to do that with the demon. So what is this personal touch about? I think he's just communicating his care to people. I think he's saying to every single one, I notice you. I got time for you. I'm not going to overlook you. And as he touched each one, he healed them all. More and more captive set free, just like he said he was going to do. And let me just speak to you this morning. If you're here and you think, man, I don't know if Jesus notices me. Friend, it doesn't matter your gender. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your economic status. 
It doesn't matter your popularity level. It doesn't matter your sin struggle. Jesus of Nazareth notices you. He has personal care for you. He's not going to overlook you. Here's what he does with his authority. He wields it for the good of his people in an effort to serve them. This is what he does. But remember, the people being healed are not the focus of the passage. Right? Luke is showing us what Jesus did so we might make the right conclusion about who he is. Because right now, the only people who are, the only beings who are making the right conclusion about who Jesus is, is the demons. Right? Verse 34, they cry out, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Verse 41, they cry out, you're the Son of God. You're the Christ. And Jesus is rebuking them because he's not looking for a demonic endorsement. No, no, no. He's looking for people to recognize who he is. And so far, they haven't got it, based on what we see in the next verses. So let's look at him, 42 through 44. And when it was day, he departed and went to a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to him, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So short night sleep for Jesus. Not surprisingly, he's up up early. What is surprising is that he's already leaving town. The people of Capernaum are shocked. And if we're reading this with fresh eyes, we ought to be shocked. I mean, he's got every preacher's dream right here. Everybody begging to hear him teach. Revival is breaking out. People wanting to do church on Monday. Coming to him, begging him, stay. Stay with us. But friends, Jesus wasn't interested in that. He's not interested in the size of the crowd. He's not interested in his ratings. He's not interested in leaving a legacy. He's not going to be seduced by popularity. See, he had a task from his father. He had a purpose for which he was sent. And he was not going to let Satan sidetrack him from that, and he was not going to let his biggest fans sidetrack him from that. No, he says it in verse 43. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. His purpose was not the crowds. His purpose was not the miracles. His purpose was The message, the message of the kingdom of God. Because, friends, here is the reality of the world that we live in. Okay, this is the true story of the whole world. Since Genesis chapter 3, all of creation has been under the authority of Satan, it has been under a curse. Okay, it has been in bondage to sin. The people of God have been oppressed and enslaved. And what they thought was that they were oppressed and enslaved by enemy nations. But oh, no, 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 no. Much more enslaved by Satan. Much more enslaved by this bondage to death. Much more enslaved by the corruption and sin in their own hearts. And and for years, hundreds of years, they had been praying and hoping for a Messiah to come and deliver them. For the promised one that the Spirit of the Lord would be on, that would set captives free. And last week, Jesus comes to Nazareth and he says, hey, that's me. 
the one who's going to do all those things, I'm him. I'm the one who's going to bring in this kingdom, this rule and reign of God. And I'm not just going to tell it to the people in Capernaum. Everybody needs to hear it. You see, friends, the reason why the people in Capernaum wanted Jesus to stick around is because they wanted his miracles. They they wanted his benefits. But, y'all, the miracles were not ends in themselves. All these people were going to go get sick and die again. No, the miracles pointed to the message and the messenger. That was their point. And the message is that God's kingdom was breaking in in the person of Jesus Christ. God's kingdom was coming, and Jesus was coming with an invitation to rebels come and be a part of that kingdom. Now, if you're familiar with your Bible, you got to be thinking, all right, how, how's that possible? Right? If, if we had rebelled against Jesus and his kingdom, how, I mean, he's holy. He's just. How, how can he be fair to his justice? How can he vindicate his holiness and still let rebels into his kingdom? Right? Wouldn't that devalue his character? We, we know the verses. God says, my eyes are too pure to look on evil. No man can see me and live. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. The wages of sin is death. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of whom they must give an account. How could rebels be welcomed into the kingdom? Well, there's only one way. Jesus was going to do something that no king had ever done. But before we look at what Jesus did, I just want to hold him up in contrast against an earthly king to, to remind us how earthly kings normally work, to show us how shocking it is what Jesus had done. So five centuries before Jesus, there's a guy named Xerxes, king of Persia. Persia, Persia. I said, I said that like a true southerner, okay? Xerxes um, was offended at the Greeks because they had killed his father Darius. And so in an effort to expand his kingdom, Xerxes rallies the largest land and sea army ever assembled, and he's going to go take back what rightfully belongs to his father in his mind. Well, there's a man named Pythias of Lydia. Okay? Pythias was the second richest guy in the world. And he, one night he entertained Xerxes and his entire army. And he, he tells Xerxes, hey, I'm willing to fund the entire war effort. But I've got one favor to ask. I got five boys, and uh, I'm getting old. And Xerxes, I just asked that my oldest boy could stay back and care for his aging father. Xerxes was so offended by this request and the lack of allegiance toward him and his kingdom. Here's what he did. He had that oldest son sawn in two placed on either side of a road and made made the entire army parade down that road to show what would happen if they didn't show allegiance to him. And then as they went to do his dirty work for him, his safety and his comfort was of highest priority. That's how earthly kings work. Friends, let me tell you about how this king works. This king had also been offended by the way that his subjects had treated his father. 
Right? It wasn't just one guy who didn't pledge allegiance to him. It was every single subject ever had rebelled against him and gone their own way. One theologian says it was cosmic treason. We've all rejected his authority and tried to establish our own authority. And this king would have been completely just to come down and conquer, to come down and destroy. But friends, that's not how this king wields his authority. No, 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 no. Friends, and if you don't hear anything else, please lean in and please let your soul be refreshed by this. And if you're not a Christian, friends, this is the message of Christianity. Forget what you've ever thought about it. What I'm about to tell you is this. This is Christianity. The high king of heaven, Jesus Christ, he left the safety and comfort of heaven to come down and be among guilty subjects. And he didn't come to conquer. He came to save. And he knew there was no other way to save. There's no other way to offer freely the kingdom of God to rebels unless he took their payment for them. Unless he absorbed God's justice in their place. And so one day, friends, not long, only a couple years after this, Jesus of Nazareth, really truly in human history, was nailed to a Roman cross and all the sin of the world and all the curse of evil, brokenness, sickness, climbed upon him. The sin of all the people in Nazareth, the sin of all the people in Capernaum, the sin of arrogant presidents, the sin of angry protesters, the sin of terrorists, the sin of molesters, the sin of the self-righteous, the sin of the God-denying, the sin of the sexually immoral. It all crawled up onto him, my sin and your sin. And Almighty God crushed him in our place. This is the only way that rebels could ever be welcomed into the kingdom. But friend, about to sing in just a few minutes, death could not hold you. The veil tore before you. You silenced the boast of sin and grave. Of course this high king came back to life. And when he did, he came back with the offer of the kingdom that whoever would believe, whoever would turn from their sin and come under his rule could be welcomed into God's joyful, happy, right kingdom forever. And the only way he could do it was by his cross and in his resurrection to demonstrate his authority over sin. This is our last observation. Jesus has authority over sin. This is why Paul can write, In Colossians chapter 1, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The only way we could be transferred is through his death on the cross. The only way we could come out from under the rule of Satan and sin is because Jesus has sacrificed himself 
for us so that we might be brought into God's kingdom. That was Jesus' message. That was his task. That was his purpose, to testify to the kingdom of God. And so he went town to town telling people all about it. Friends, Luke's goal in this passage is to highlight Jesus' authority so that we might reach the right conclusion about his identity. And here's what we see. He's not like other leaders. He's not like other leaders with empty promises. No, 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 no. He does what he says he's going to do every time. He does what he claims. He is the one who sets captives free. He is the promised Messiah. He is the king of the kingdom. But just like he did 2,000 years ago, he demands a response. And so I want to apply this to us with kind of four categories of response this morning as we close. For in this passage, um, there are many people in this passage who are amazed at Jesus. They're astonished at him. But they still don't get who he is. Okay? They want his benefits, but they have not submitted to him as their king. And friend, let me just tell you, you can have Jesus as king, or you can't have him at all. That's how it goes with him. It's not enough to be near to him. It's not enough to be familiar with him. It's not even enough to be amazed by him. It's not enough to think he's a good teacher. No, you've got to submit to his authority as king, or he's not yours at all. And so let me ask this morning, middle schooler, high schooler, is he your king? Are you, just, are you near to him by proximity of your parents? Or is he your king? Visitor, maybe you're here and you love how you feel when you leave church. Just There's happy people and you leave happy. Familiarity, my friend, it's, it's not enough. Is he your king? Okay, here's how the Bible instructs us. Jesus himself instructs us to repent, to turn from being our own authority, to turn from trusting in ourselves, and to come under his rule. And know that you're welcome to come under his rule because of his sacrifice for you. Have you done that? Today's the day if you hadn't. Second, and this is for most of us, um, most of us are here because we're Christians. We have been brought into God's kingdom by faith. Praise God. But it's easy for a lot of us to drift. Right? It's easy for some of us to try to take back authority from Jesus in certain areas of our life. Is there any area of your life that's not submitted to the authority of Jesus? Is there any area of your life that he's not ruling and reigning? Maybe your work. Maybe your money. Maybe your relationship. Maybe your entertainment, your social media. A big one for us right now, you guys, in a heightened political season is politics. Are your politics submitted to your king? Do you have more allegiance to the high king of heaven or more allegiance to your political party? Are, are your political views, are your political stances informed by your king? 
are they informed by popular culture? Are, are you treating people across the aisle the way that your king would instruct you to treat them? Are you loving them and serving them and laying your life down for them? Is there any area of your life that's not submitted to his authority? Guys, his cross proves that he's a good thing, a good king. We can, we can submit to him. Okay, third, for those in positions of authority, okay, parents, teachers, coaches, bosses, leaders, are you using your authority to serve? Are you using your authority to serve? Are you taking personal care of the people underneath your authority? Are you wielding your authority to do good to those people? Are you laying down your life for them? Jesus showed us in this passage, man, that's true greatness, to wield your authority to do good to others. Okay, and then last, for the suffering, for the hurting, for the lonely, for the grieving, for the brokenhearted, maybe you read this passage and you think, Jesus healed all these. Why didn't he heal me? He touched all these. Why didn't he touch me? He's helped all these people. Why didn't he help me? And and friends, I've asked this question a lot. I've got a chronic disease that I wish he would just heal. He hadn't. But this is where our theology is so important, okay? Remember this morning, the point of Jesus' miracles is not to show that he heals everyone every time. It's not the point. Believing that is actually going to hurt us. Paul tells us, Acts chapter 14, it's through many tribulations that we must inherit the kingdom of God. Suffering is part of life in a broken world. No, the point of the miracles is to give us a foretaste of the coming kingdom. You see, in Jesus Christ, the kingdom had come in part. Yes, God's rule had broken in. Yes, he made a way for us to be forgiven of of our sins and to come under his authority. But his God's rule had not, it hadn't fully come. Hadn't physically and literally come. And and friend, if you're suffering this morning, here's what I want to hold out to you. Okay, and it's a dominant thread in the New Testament. Hope in what's to come. There's a day that is coming when this Jesus will come back and he will set up his kingdom and he will wipe away every tear from your eye and there will be no more sickness and there will be no more sorrow and there will be no more sadness and there will be no more death and you will be with your God and he will look on you and he will touch you and he will love you and you will look at him with adoration knowing that he is the great king with all wisdom and you will bow your knee to your king and all your pain will be taken away. That day's coming for you. So hold on. The cross proves that he is good. You keep trusting him. Keep trusting him. Friends, Jesus is altogether different. He has authority over Satan. He has authority over sickness. He has authority over sin. And his authority reveals his identity. He's a good king. He's the promised Messiah. He's the one who has come to set captives free. And friends, until he comes to do that in his fullness, which he will do, let's stand and let's worship him. Let's give him the praise that he deserves for being who he is. Let's pray. 
Father, we bow to you. We thank you so much for the gift of your son. Oh, and Jesus, we want to just praise you for who you are. There's none like you, Lord God. There is literally none like you. You are incomparable. You have no rival. You are in a league of your own. You have authority that is, just can't be touched. And Lord, we praise you that you use it for our good. We praise you that you who have authority are good and you're loving. Oh, and you don't abuse it. You use it to serve. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just compel our hearts now to worship you and to praise you. Uh, we do love you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.